Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you once again from the swimming pool of the highly respected and extremely well-known Department of Ocean Science and Engineering here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we don our speedos and dip beneath the wine-dark waters of the Mediterranean to look at a recent find, fantastically preserved ships and their contents from the sunken first millennium BCE port of Thanis Heraklion in the western Nile Delta. What does this site hint at regarding the untold number of ships and sunken sites in the Mediterranean and beyond? Do these finds from now missing worlds give new hints regarding the extent of maritime trade in antiquity? How does this particular find extend the history of the fruit basket back in time? And why do our panelists keep talking about Osiris and Lloyd Bridges? In honor of, uh, of this special underwater edition. I have an underwater related um, lightning round, which is best underwater related TV show of your, oh. uh, of your childhood. Oh, yeah. I don't know the name of it, but it, it's the one that was um, with the, with the super marionettes, uh, one of the fireball XL5. Stingray. Power. Stingray. Yeah. yeah. That's a good answer. Yeah. Stingray. I got to put that. <laughs> I mean anything with super marionettes. Oh, I that was my my passion. Yeah, as a wow. child. Wow. I learned how to walk like those guys. <laughs> I belong to the fan club for Thunderball. What's XL five. Thund yeah, Thunderball XL five. Oh, I'm learning yeah. a lot about both of you. <laughs> None of it good, I realize. But uh, yeah, I had a Thunderball XL five model, mm. and but. During play with it, I don't know, my sister lost the robot and classic. <laughs> yeah, it kind of messed up our relationship. <laughs> classic Shelly move. Yeah. We, we fixed it up. It took a while. But... All right. Uh, Rachel? Yeah, I didn't have an underwater favorite show. Honestly, underwater didn't really interest me as a child. Um, but I did like the, the I guess, late 90s movie um, with Bill Murray, the Steve Zissou, what was that thing called? Oh, yeah. The, the Aquatic Life. Was yes, the Aquatic, aquatic Life. life. Right. Yeah. Wes Anderson. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, and, you know, so that's that's all I can do. What was that show with, what was this Richard Basehart? Uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That was, that was also an epic underwater uh, TV show. I, I like that very much uh, with the flying sub. That was always my, yeah. my, favorite, my yeah. favorite piece of gear. And it's sort of, you know, very much riffed off of um, Jules Verne because it had giant squids and giant octopi and all those kinds of things, along with lots of Cold War Russians and Chinese. Right. And, and there were a lot of aliens, too. Right. Yeah, the, I, yeah. I liked it much better than um, Lost in Space, I have to say. I love Lost in Space. I, I understand Lost in Space is very polarizing. And I, I like Lost in Space because I always thought of, you know, why can't I have the opportunity to be lost in space like Bill Mummy? <laughs> <laughs> why, why, why him and not me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always liked both Judy and Penny, the idea of young women, you yes. know, kind of helping their family along. And, yes. And yeah. see, I always, and I always wanted to be Don, the co-pilot, <laughs> caught in this perennial triangle. There was a lot of sexual tension that they really didn't that they play didn't up the way they should have. No, but it was all there. Yeah. But um, Jude Lockhart was a strong woman. I mean, yeah. she, 
you know, she was absolutely had lots of agency. That's uh, true. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yep. I also like the robot, obviously. <laughs> a lot of, I think there were a lot of people crushing on the robot. Yeah. <laughs> well, danger, danger, danger. Yeah. 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 He's very, <laughs> he was very authoritative, but right. he had a heart of, heart of gold. But I think you're right. I think all robots and talking computers from that era were very, very likable. They yeah. remain likable. I mean, yeah. you know. And, and currently the real talking robots and computers are just not as exciting as those were. I mean, we've got Roombas that go around on the floor. <laughs> and, Do you guys have a Roomba? Uh, no, actually we don't. Which, which of course begs the, you know, Groucho Marx line. Take, take a Roomba from one to nine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Should we go back to underwater? Well, my favorite. <laughs> Thanks right. for remembering me. Guys. No, I thought you. I thought you went in on far on on, yeah. uh, on um. Well, no, I want to put a good word in for um for uh, both Jacques Cousteau, oh. okay. and and for Sea Hunt, because mm. I was a big Lloyd Bridges fan. Yeah, I did not. I, I never I never got into that one. Independent contractor doing this variety of strange stuff mm -hmm. underwater, yeah. scuba diving. Yeah. But you know, it's a matter of personal taste. I my taste these days have gone more towards Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And and his classic role in, in airplane. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, so, no, there's nothing wrong with I mean Lloyd Bridges is the whole bridge, all the bridges are great. Right. Uh, but um, with a yeah, big shout yeah. out for Bo. Yeah. <laughs> Bo. Bo. Yeah. Bo, the shape of Bo and the name Bo are, I always found very sort of, you know, discontinuous. <laughs> you don't think he was a Bo? And I don't think he is a Bo. Okay. I don't think pear shaped goes with Bo. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it on the Jeff note then. Okay. <laughs> the dude abides. The dude abides. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the real reason that we're underwater is to talk about um, this very interesting find of, of an entire uh, sh shipwreck graveyard in the Northwest Nile Delta with fantastic, beautiful preservation of organic materials, including most recently baskets containing uh, pits and stuff from fruit. It's nice to know that fruit baskets actually go way back in time. That the fruit <laughs> basket is not a post-World War II middle-class affectation, but that the fruit basket has very, very deep temporal roots. That's right. It's not <laughs> something true. that simply appeared on your grandmother's coffee table or that you brought to a neighbor when they moved in. Though it does have a lot to do with death. <laughs> yeah, somebody dies you get a fruit basket you take when somebody dies you send them a fruit basket well that's true and i i, I guess our current example kind of proves that yeah proves that point yeah yeah but, but i i also very much like that you got these wicker baskets and they contain fruit that's just so something we can all relate to yeah it's, that's yeah. true who doesn't like a nice piece of fruit Right. In, in a nice basket. In a nice basket. A nice ba exactly. Tastefully presented. Right. I mean, the you're right, because the basket, the presentation of fruit and these kinds of gifts, apparently these fruit baskets um, are being a part of a, a mortuary offering. Yeah. Um, right. Because there's this big, vast um, uh, tumulus that is uh, alongside or below or around this uh, ship graveyard. So, you know, it's, it's not just a ship graveyard, it's a city, right. it's a temple, it's a tumulus uh, that was sealed in antiquity uh, and never touched again. And all of this stuff, well, the ship graveyard was, is a little bit different because the site subsided, the site sunk right. because of uh, <clears throat> weak soil and, uh, and rising sea levels. So, you know. And earthquakes. And, well, the earthquakes seemed a little bit later. Uh, initially, oh. the, I think the article seemed to suggest that, that it, was it was built on porous land. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, <laughs> hat tip to right. uh, Florida and, um, and that it all sunk uh, with some rising sea levels, hat tip to the 21st century. Um, 
And so that's one component of the site. And then the other component is this incredible um, ship graveyard. Right, for where for, for 600 years or something, they took ships, they abandoned ships, they dismantled ships, they took different parts, they reused, they ritually killed ships, they, they sank them, the owners ran away. Again, kind of like Florida, kind of like, you know. Arizona, Staten, isn't that where Arizona, where all these... Uh, Air, air, you know, old air aircraft are being mothballed. Yeah, in Tucson, in yeah. Tucson. Yeah, Davis, uh, Davis Montham. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. We should also point out that the location of this is near is near the Bay of Abukir, in the Bay of Abukir, and right near Rosetta, um, and that the, the and Alexandria, which which ultimately right. uh, was built to sort of replace it. Replace right. it. Right. Yeah. Right. So this was the important dock, uh, the important harbor before Alexandria was was built. This is gate, gateway to the Aegean, or there the Aegean, Aegean gateway to Egypt. Right. 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 Um, and we should also say, because you mentioned the the, the temple and the city, um, that this is dedicated apparently to Osiris. Um, so when we talk about ritual, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, <laughs> Can you yeah. talk about Egypt without talking about ritual or dead people? You can't. We're talking Not about really. Osiris specifically. I see dead people. <laughs> it's uh, well. The interesting thing to me is all this all this crazy stuff is just it was completely out of sight and completely unknown until uh, you know twenty plus years ago when <laughs> some guy slipped into his speedo and <laughs> and went went diving and it points out that so much of the past. Um, archaeologically speaking, is is underwater and out of sight, yeah. and and we we who tread on the land um, tend not to fully incorporate uh, this into our thinking, right? And, uh, and our have, reconstructions. I have a statistic that um, <laughs> that <laughs> I... we have statistic music. We need some. <laughs> yeah, we should, yes. we should get our musician to. Have a little statistical interlude music. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, that this comes from a very old article from uh, written by George Bass um, in the '90s. The late George Bass. Yes. Shout uh, out. That there was a study done that between 1864 and 1869, 10,000 sailing ships insured in England were lost all over the world. Um, which is like half of all sailing ships uh, were lost. And that means they're still underwater somewhere. And that was just from a discrete number of years, which always felt like a very unusually high number to me. Um, but um, there were at least, same article, a thousand wrecks from before 1500 AD. Um, so there's, there should be a lot of ships underwater. That, that's kind of the point of the statistic. Wow. Yeah, I tried to look up the number of, of the, the wrecks just in the Mediterranean, but I couldn't really find it on, on one foot, but it's, it's thousands. Right. But I really have to wonder, you know, if you're in the, in the British maritime insurance business oh, that's <laughs> in, right. in this yeah. period, and, and you're just looking like, what, how do the economics of that work? And you, and you stay in business. Right. right. Well, I mean, I'm sure we could actually ask the official historian of Lloyd's of London <laughs> those kinds of questions and get real-time answers. But, but we're not here for real answers. We're <laughs> no. here for rampant speculation. <laughs> That's right. 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 Uh, but it also shows, you know, I mean, I guess this goes without saying that, you know, being a sailor uh, is kind of dangerous because ships are going down left and right. <laughs> That's right. And you have to wonder um, what happened back in the Neolithic. When, <laughs> when you have to wonder that. I think I the crews were much smaller. I think the, the, the Neolithic crews were very just a couple of guys in a gender non-specific and a boat, a small boat. Right. So from a, a an insurance and actuarial standpoint, <laughs> I think the, the risk is probably lower for the insurer. But yeah, the Neolithic insurance firms were not were not in trouble. That's right. But you have to you have to wonder okay you know you're sitting on the shore of the mediterranean in the in the neolithic and you're wondering is there something out there is there is there an island um 100 miles to the west uh i'm going to construct some kind of rudimentary conveyance and just go for it 
I'm going to yeah. follow those pygmy hippos on uh, uh, that I see steaming towards Cyprus. <laughs> right there, the, every day you see the pygmy hippos swimming, <laughs> swimming west, and you become fascinated. And you're like, I'm going to do that. First, and, you become fascinated that they're that they appear to be hippos and they're so small. Right. And then you say, Oh, but they're going someplace. That's what I need to do. <laughs> they must know what they're doing. <laughs> but that's how people got to all these islands. Well, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, for Polynesian or Micronesian archaeology and proto-history, there's a, there's a ton of material right. on these kinds of things, because that's, that's the whole nature of, of the beast in Oceania, is, you know, why, did, <coughs> why do you leave islands? Why do you go to islands? There's this big question about whether these Polynesian <coughs> uh, um, voyages, whether they knew they were, where they were going, whether they knew that they were on a one-way trip, whether they could actually get back and forth. So that's a big part of understanding the archeology span and, and proto-history of Oceania. It just doesn't seem quite as uh, robust. That's also, a, that's also a process that went on over thousands of years. Uh, yeah, well, moving, not thousands. From, from west to, to east. Yeah, not, right. I wouldn't, yeah, maybe, right, that, yeah. Maybe a couple thousand, yeah. Mm -hmm. if, yep. if we if we pull this back towards the Mediterranean, yeah, though, let's do that. Let's focus a little bit more on on the the example at hand. I mean, we knew we had. Well, oh, I wasn't going to do that yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's. Uh... I was, I was just going to mention that we know we have international uh, ship trading from the early Bronze Age when you've got these Byblos ships from Egypt to Byblos, which would hug the coast. Um, so I don't know, is that our earliest clear, clear example? Well, no, of... I mean, uh, the, the warm embrace of the coast is, is fine, but people are, are people are, are going to islands like Cyprus and out to the Aegean islands yeah. much, yeah. much earlier. And they're just, they're just letting it all hang out there and taking, uh, taking big chances. Right. And, uh, you have to wonder <laughs> about, you have to wonder about the psychology yeah. Right. Though Cyprus wasn't a big chance because it's 90 miles from the tip of Cyprus to the coast of Syria. Mm. And if you squint real hard, you can And if you squint it. real hard, you can see, see it. So that was a pretty known quantity. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, what we don't know is the degree of, you know, the, the technology in, in the sort of later part of the Neolithic and, and those, are, those millennia. Right. right. But that's the mechanism that humans and domesticated plants and animals are, are moving around from Cyprus to the Aegean, all around the Aegean, the Western Year, right. Western Mediterranean islands. Right. And um, I mean, pretty courageous well, stuff. Now, if I bring it slightly closer to our time frame, not all the way. You should, we, should we mention the name of the site that we're actually talking about? Oh, that's yeah. a good idea. Thonis Heraklion. There we go. There we are. Right. I was just going to say that by the late Bronze Age, we have a couple of shipwrecks that have been really well excavated. And we know a lot about this whole Mediterranean Aegean to the, the coast uh, sort of route. And uh, we know a lot of the contents from that period. And that this uh, Thanos Heraklion material just gives us an insight into the Hellenistic period trade. Right. And also the, also the, the sort of land side of of that equation right right um that yeah the ships had to go somewhere of course you know we, if, if you go to rome you don't see the <clears throat> the bronze age port the iron age port the roman port per se <clears throat> but you walk around you see piles of millions literally millions and millions and millions of sherds from vessels that were coming from all over the mediterranean south southern mediterranean western mediterranean and they're trading stuff every which way wine oil garum and right. they were just a bunch stuff. of importer exporters <laughs> right. so at one point they decided to emphasize the exports <laughs> lighten up on the imports but uh people get yeah. these references besides us <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, our listener what, what, is very perspicacious what people oh <laughs> people, people. Our, you mean our listener <laughs> That's that's what I mean. Our our listener. No, right. Uh, um, anyway, uh, 
and and the questions are always very interesting in terms of you know are they making round trips are they shipping this way or that way what's what is the cargo what is the cargo the other way um, but what I kind of like about this site is is that it is associated it's not just the ship that you got you got the whole port and you got the whole um, Osiris worship at this particular port city aspect really? and and um, you have the whole uh, Hellenistic Egypt, you know, the Greek influence in Egypt, the Egyptian influence on, on the Greeks uh, living there, so, or, or trading there. Well, that's a big question in all these periods, and, and I guess the, the late Bronze Age Cape Geladonia shipwreck, <laughs> that's how you pronounce it, <laughs> what, what brought this to the forefront in the late 60s and 70s. Is that Who's doing this trading? Right. Right. Are, they, are they multinational crews with, you know, or are they one group and are they stopping all, all over the place? Are they making a beeline from one site to another? And I think the answer is yes right. to, to all of it. Yeah. I mean, for the late Bronze Age, there is this, this, um, this big discontinuity. We think we know a lot, but we really know very little. We know a lot about the stuff but we don't know anything about the mechanisms, the actual trade mechanisms and who's running the trade. We don't know about the taxation system. We don't know who's, you know, how they're interacting and whether it's, you know, this particular site, uh, Thanos Heraklion, it's very interesting because it's a Greek site that was set up for all this Greek shipping um, on the, you know, on the coast uh, of, of, uh, of the Nile Delta. Right, and right. it was a gateway city that was really quite Hellenized, as you said. It's a fusion of Greek and, or, uh, you know, uh, Hellenistic and, and uh, Egyptian culture. But it's very much a gateway city. Right. And for the late Bronze Age, we have no idea about the mechanics of the trade and the quotient, you know, sort of the dynamics between um, uh, individual trading concerns and governments and things like that. But we... But we think we know a lot about it. Uh, that's a really interesting question. Were these were these commissioned by governments? Were they private? Were they privateers? What what exactly was the mechanism? I never yes. thought about that. <laughs> yes, probably all of the above. But you know, if if we didn't have the the archives from late Bronze Age Ugarit, um, a thousand doctoral dissertations would have would have. Would, Not, would have would have sunk beneath the, <laughs> beneath the wine blood sea, right. uh, but, you know, because there they're talking about you know something about fleets and ships and navies and stuff, but that's a tiny little slice of a of a larger of a much 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 larger picture, and because you have these kinds of Thanos Heraklion like sites whether they're ethnic enclaves in other countries or other you know, places is one thing, but you have ports all over the damn place. And, and there are Roman period and later ports uh, all over the Red Sea that are connecting right. Egypt with, with Africa, with Mesopotamia, with, with South Asia. Right. And we and have Rhodian, Asia. Rhodian handles found all over you know, the right. Southern part of India. Right. Um, right. Right. And the same kind of thing went on in Mesopotamia as well. Right, which which was an aquatic um, civilization, <laughs> not simply. <laughs> well, we should probably, you know, differentiate between river transport and and. Well, I'm thinking of all the well. First of all, all the southern Mesopotamian cities were crisscrossed by canals. Right. And you could take <clears throat> your you could take your bark or whatever <laughs> ship and just park it, you know, go up uh, the the Gulf and park it right at the at the key right at the quay yeah <laughs> quay i always I wondered think, about that i i don't know i think it's quay could be okay all right let's go with that <laughs> but then you sail down to dill moon and then you sail on to to My India. god yeah. yeah but you got to be careful because not all rivers <laughs> are are equal i was just reading about the 19th century american naval expedition to the jordan river mm -hmm. um, yes where they introduced ironclad ships Exactly. But they came thinking, oh, we're going to be able to use the Jordan River as a trade route. And they ended up having to drag their ships along the shore because well, they were because they because they read the Bible and they thought it was true. They, exactly. They were they misinformed. Were the mighty Jordan. <laughs> and, yeah. Right. 
It's yeah. like going to Casablanca for the waters. Right. Uh... <laughs> well, one thing I want to say, one thing I want to come back to when in, ter in terms of talking about the mechanics of these interactions is that this particular site, Thanos Heraklion, was um, established in the 8th century BCE. And it was clearly established with the permission of, of you know, pharaonic authority. Mm. That, that they weren't, so it wasn't, it was whatever the, was going on on the Aegean side, whether it was private or, or governmental, on the Egyptian side, it was definitely done in concert with pharaonic policy, um, that you, were, you would be allowed to establish this port and this would be your entry point. And so there was some, deal, some degree of pharaonic control over what the Greeks were, were doing and how they were getting in. And, and there was some oversight. Uh, and it's in a period of, of increasing um, Greco-Egyptian contacts. Right, but still at a point where Egypt has, you know, there are periodic uh, kings who were quite powerful in the yeah. late period. Right. right, right. They were their own thing. <laughs> when was the city of Naucratus founded? I'm trying to look that up as we as we talk. Boy, I'm not prepared for that question at all. <laughs> I don't think I could ever have answered that question. Okay, well, um, I'll, I'll let you know if I find shame. the answer because that was a big deal Greek city in, in Egypt. That's true. Yeah. Um, and these kinds of foreign enclaves um, to facilitate shipping are, are not obviously uncommon in early modern, well, all throughout history, but in early modern right. history uh, and more recent times, you have places like Singapore and Hong Kong, Macau, uh, Macau, um, which were sort of local things, but they took on immense new significance when, uh, when foreigners came along. Right. The question is how, you know, and this is always a question, how these, how, what kinds of, you know, analogies we can make from early modern or modern examples to, to the past. And uh, this is something that I'm always a little bit troubled by. I do it in class. I do it all the time. But um, I'm always wondering how appropriate these kinds of things, you know, um, are these Greek forays into Egypt, are they structured like, you know, the Italian doges, right. <laughs> you know, it's... Venetian doges mm -hmm. in the Middle East? That's something that we often use and often mm -hmm. think about and talk about. But is that, you know, the best way of understanding it? Um, or are there really very, you know, key idiosyncratic aspects of you know, fourth century BCE, uh, Aegean, Egyptian right. relations that that are more important than, or you know, more incomprehensible than early modern examples would allow us to think. Right, that's a good question. We need we need to go back in time, obviously. Yeah. Oh. It all goes back to capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but know. there's also the 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 sort of back and forth cultural influence, which I find really interesting too. That <clears throat> um, you know the Greeks respected ancient Egyptian culture and religion and kind of, you know, it loved superimposed, it. superimposed their gods onto the Egyptian gods. But, um, but, you know, they were still very much Greek. And where did the Egyptians, the local Egyptians, how, how Hellenized were the local Egyptians? And when did that Hellenization happen? Um, I mean, it happened by the Hellenistic period, <laughs> but here we have Greeks. Um, well, and that them. happened in the, it happened in the early Bronze Age. Um, at, at Byblos and probably some other sites on the, the central northern Levantine coast. It always comes back to the early Bronze Age, doesn't it, with you guys? <laughs> everything, everything important um, happened then. Yeah. And, or, or began then. Yeah, so these Egyptians cruise up one day and, and the locals are like, wow. We should, we should bring fruit baskets. <laughs> Look at these guys. You should you welcome know? them with... with uh, Grape seeds and 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 dates, yeah, yeah. dome nuts. <laughs> yeah, well, it's you know our our biblites in the third millennium, uh, basically a cargo cult. <laughs> <laughs> Discuss, um, uh, you know, and that's again, that's sort of where we <clears throat> we push the envelope of of analogizing. Um, you certainly have speculating rampantly yes as is, as is our want of course well but. let's go back to the sixth century <laughs> ce or bce 
um, BC when this whole thing when when this went ship down. went down when when the tumulus was was formed I guess um, when when they no, I think the tumulus was was constructed in the fourth century BC oh, and it was closed and never touched again okay and I think they you know they, they talk a lot yeah, about the fact that it it's a real you know it's a real sealed thing that the remains in it only date to the fourth century BCE and there's okay. nothing later and clearly they sealed it up and never touched it. No one ever went into it again. No one ever used it again. And it's pretty big. What is it? Something on the order, it's humongous for a tumulus. It's um, six, like 65 meters by eight meters. It's a big, long- um, Big tumulus. <laughs> it's a big, long tumulus. I, I, have, I have no room for a tumulus that size. But. Right, right. Um, and if you I, go all over the Mediterranean and everywhere, you'll find underwater uh, cities and remains, temples and cities and ports and <clears throat> all this kind of stuff. But uh, the advantage here is because it's kind of lagoon-like, it's the organic materials are well preserved and because it's a tumulus, there's, it's essentially sealed. Right. So. Oh, so that, that brings me to another point that we should talk about, um, forget the fourth century, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about modern uh, diving and ar under, underwater archaeology, which is like a whole other technique. And I don't think any of us have ever engaged in underwater archaeology, any of the three of us. Um, but uh, first of all, you got to know how to dive. Yeah, and... that's, not, that's not rocket science. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, it, it, look, it all comes down to one thing, one word, one word only, speedo. <laughs> okay and nobody wants nobody wants to to see us in in speedos okay that was not the word i was looking for <laughs> no, nor was that the direction i was going to take this in but <laughs> no yeah, but do you exactly. do you do you question that observation i know i accept it as a, as a given i think <laughs> uh, thank you but I, I, was I hate to shatter the, the vision that our listener has in their head. But I think the reality is you're wearing wetsuits. You're not wearing yes. speedos. Right. So I think that I. You're wearing wetsuits. Jacques Cousteau, <laughs> National Geographic specials might have sent us on a slightly false. Yeah. But then the problem is, you know, whaling. <laughs> but, <laughs> as long as there are no Japanese whalers in the vicinity, I suppose it would be safe for us. But. Um, <laughs> but, but I digress. <laughs> I was getting to the difficulties, the physical difficulties. You're wearing a wetsuit. You've got oxygen on your back. Um, you can't just stick it. You can lay out a grid underwater, which is much trickier than laying out a grid above water because everything is kind of waving and blowing <laughs> everywhere. And then you have to remove things, but you can't dig normally. And you use, I guess you use brushes to remove yeah, suction. suction tubes. Okay. Yeah. But then as soon as you lift anything organic, like well-preserved wood out of the water, it immediately hits the oxygen and then it starts to deteriorate. And that's an issue. There's a lot of preservation yeah. kinds of things, but the technique is basically the same. You're removing dirt to expose the stuff and recording it as you go along. Well, um, that, in that sense, the technique is the same, but the physical excavation is very different. I mean, you're underwater. Why don't you all those years, on land, wouldn't you have liked to be able to float above <laughs> what it is that you're excavating? Yes, and yeah. have a real clock, knowing you're only down there for whatever, you know, 45 minutes and then you're done. I would rather spend six or eight hours in the hot Mediterranean sun than half an hour underwater. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, just I, would, I would do it, I would, I would do it in crystal clear blue water. <laughs> Which I'm sure is, is all the conditions always, right? <laughs> They're very uniform. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, no, I I, you know, darkness, of... I'm, not, I'm not diving in darkness. Forget that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have enough darkness Boy. in my life as it is. I don't need to literally immerse myself that's, in more. That's a great title for a feshra. <laughs> diving in darkness. <laughs> yeah. Well, the terrestrial well. activities of Alexander Joffe. <laughs> Yeah, keep that keep that in mind. You know, <laughs> memorial volume or something. Right, right. Well, one thing, um, sort of along the same lines, sort of along different lines, that you know, I learned this in my freshman first archaeology course ever, is um, at least in the Greek world, 
most of your bronze statues that are preserved come from shipwrecks or That's underwater right. sites because otherwise they're they're melting them all down for for weaponry and later wars and they're just not not preserved and there they are underwater perfectly preserved maybe slightly corroded but no big deal um and uh i, I kind of like that a whole <laughs> new source of, of archaeological information that's right yep but i like the idea that there are whole worlds that are that have disappeared and i i always go back to uh, doggerland on the on on what is now the the english channel you know the the submerged world of the of pre-neolithic england that <laughs> had, had the misfortune to being to be submerged and uh, the the land bridge between england and the continent so sort of the whole atlantis myth kind mm. of meme right these lost cities under undersea right there was another good movie, City Under the Sea, with Stuart Whitman. Another, another Irwin right. Allen film. But uh, I can check Doggerland off my list here. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, so but would you would you do it if you had the opportunity? I mean, friends of ours friends of ours do it. Friends of ours have started Marine Archaeology Institute. Students of ours do it, and. Uh, yeah, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> I get the other thing that's always bothered me is the whole seeing underwater thing, having <laughs> Coke bottle sized glasses. I don't think you need, I think there's some, I think you can get masks that have your prescription and things like that. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to look into that. Right. I don't think you need to worry about that as much. <laughs> <laughs> not as long as the as long as the whaling conventions are still are still in effect you know something to uh it's something to pursue but, yeah um, well let's also, talk about these i want to talk about these dome nuts okay from mm. these uh from the dome palm firstly mm -hmm. i want to mention that sometimes they're called donum nuts and i think that that's just some kind of cheap anglization of donut <laughs> but um, these dome nuts are really quite, quite extraordinary, right? So they, they have a red-orange fruit that is likened to gingerbread, eaten mm. raw. And the rind is used for uh, a kind of a molasses type of thing. They, uh, the, the ground nut, it can be used to dress wounds. Oh, wow. And uh, the, there's a hard white part of the nut that is used as a, as a substitute for ivory. So for oh, buttons and things like that. And the dome palm itself is used for, for cordage and for mats and even for kind of a ersatz kind of paper. Hmm. So um, the fact that these dome nuts uh, are part of the fruit basket along with grape seeds, so I assume grapes. Right. Um, you know, this is quite, this is quite, a, uh, quite a little utilitarian product that is uh, obviously reserved for funerary you know, traditions, but also uh, has a, a great deal of utility outside of the funerary world. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I had no idea about all those, all those properties of right. those things. And uh, yeah, do, do they have any ritual significance that uh, perhaps well, they must have because, I mean they must have. <laughs> they must have because they're being because it's interesting that there's such a very narrow uh, range of fruits just two grapes yeah just two yeah. and dome nuts so uh, clearly mm. there is a very you know narrow ritual funerary um, assortment of fruits that can be used yeah well, let's talk about Osiris specifically for a second. Um, <laughs> talk about speculating wildly. <laughs> um, Boy, so, we've all got our own little, it's interesting that this particular episode, we all have our own little jags yeah. and, and none of them overlap. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Right, Possibly because right. I know very little about underwater archaeology. So I keep having to bring it back to the little stuff I do know about. Our, our listener is, is out there drawing a Venn diagram. And, <laughs> right. Uh, of where we overlap. There's circles all over the place. Okay. So Osiris, mm -hmm. God of the underworld, but also associated with, with, with resurrection. You got the whole Osiris myth of his, his murder by the evil god Seth and his resurrection and the pieces of him being scattered 
and the fertility aspect of his of his resurrection. And uh, so so you've got you've got that. And while we don't know the specifics of the Osiris cult, at least I don't think we know the specifics of the Osiris cult, certainly not in the Greek period. Right. So so, um, you know, we could really make up anything we want, but <laughs> these these fruit baskets associated with his cult, we're assuming they're associated with this cult. Um, why are these nuts and these grape seeds um, being, you know, being buried in this tumulus in the site, which is associated with Osiris worship? I ask without answering. Probably because they were delicious and, and nutritious, and you can regenerate life from these things. Okay. Um, I, I've never tried to grow a. a whatever kind of palm this is <laughs> dome dome <laughs> uh, but i am going to look it up on amazon and see if i can <laughs> get you know, some seeds yeah, yeah it'll be uh it'll be the follow-up to my flax uh, experiment that's ongoing it right good. and yeah. and the ongoing papyrus experiment that's true which is in it's probably 25th year now <laughs> um right but i mean i think that's the most that's the most economical explanation or it's what the what the local florist had for fruit basket <laughs> that's right well is it is it significant that they come th these are african palm trees i mean i, mean, I think by african africa, i i think it the range includes north africa so I okay don't, i don't think i think it's local to egypt and the sudan and okay all, you know i just wanted the, to get that out of the way <laughs> yeah north africa and the horn of africa right didn't we talk about palm genetics at one point we did with yeah, Methuselah. right right yeah so by this period palm trees are are moving being moved um, every which way around the mediterranean they're they're literally being cross-fertilized with with one another so it's right. not surprising that you know Right. Okay. And great. I'm totally unfamiliar with this particular subspecies, which, which is, which is a fascinating one. Yeah, that, no, that's very interesting. Um, grapes, of course, grow easily in the Mediterranean anywhere. So, so I'm not surprised at the, the grapes there. Around um, the Mediterranean. So not really associated with Egypt. So Egypt doesn't, for instance, mm -hmm. produce wine, as far as I know, they're always importing wine and they're importing olive oil because okay, they can't grow true. these basic Mediterranean crops. Right, but, okay. but um, you know, maybe the, well, I, I mean, you know, maybe these, you know, Hellenistic traders are bringing this stuff in by the ton, you know, yeah. I mean, so. Yeah, yeah. In baskets. In baskets. Yeah. <laughs> I want to, I want to shout out to the basket itself. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, our. Our love of baskets is well known across the podcasting world. Right. We started with Neolithic baskets. That's right. And then yeah. we've moved down through the, through the millennia. Right. And, uh, it's so, uh, but in this case, I assume they went to Pottery Barn <laughs> or, or the florist and just said, you know, what, kind, what can you give me for, you know, I got like eight bucks. <laughs> right. Well, and, uh, well, no, this is also a nice example of underwater preservation of organic materials. Yes, that, that's important to, to mention that yeah. under certain circumstances, the preservation is, is fantastic. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like the bog people in, uh, in Northern Europe and uh, in the British Isles. Right. It's a, it's a good anaerobic uh, environment. Yeah. If, if you took away our oxygen we would be we would be that well preserved that's right that's um, and and uh you know the <clears throat> the pictures you see of the of the shipwrecks at the bottom of the black sea right a thousand feet down or or whatever it is with the sails still attached gently waving in this in this benthic anaerobic environment uh, and that's just mind-blowing and uh I don't know. It's like I said, it's a whole world. There's a it whole is. world under there. Yeah. It, it's uh, right. It's, um, it's like those little, like those little, uh, what are those little glow globes? Those uh... snow globes? Snow globes? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Well, the other things in this tumulus, I think I got this list right besides the dome, dome seeds and the grape seeds. Um, there's pottery, there's bronze figurines of Osiris. There are anchors. I'm not quite, quite clear if the anchors are in the tumulus or if they're just in the larger region. Um, but there were also small limestone sarcophagi for mummified animals. And Always. I want always always mummified animals in egypt wherever you go well that's true but you know here we have an osiren context <laughs> and... <laughs> we're gonna have to get a little a little bell every time osiris yeah take take a shot, take a shot. every time rachel mentions osiris take a shot <laughs> right. no obviously i'm not going to mention osiris again for the rest of the episode no <laughs> I think I'm done about Osiris, though, except that, you know, it, it's interesting. <laughs> except that you're not. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, obviously, the, the Egyptian passion for killing and mummifying literally anything that moved um, on, on the land, sea, or air is, is, you know, worth mentioning yet again. And, and in fantastic quantities certainly in these later periods yeah. Yeah. um yeah. I, I never quite figured out what was up with with that it was a, whether it was a function of increasing population and the need for sacrificial animals you know to go with the uh, with the the burials but or, or just like you know people going crazy i'm going to mummify a million cats today right <laughs> it's because it's just i love that I think it's something to do with the sort of the industrial level of the religion and these institutions mm -hmm. that they needed to build a temple to Sobek and then cram yeah. it filled with as many mummified crocodiles as possible. And so right. that so that everybody could go up there and say, you know, here's here's a couple of drachma, you know, <laughs> put in another mummified uh, crocodile for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you if you build it, they will come. Right. Right. Now that's an interesting point. That's that's actually can lead us lead me off into speculations anyway about polytheism versus monotheism, which might be too large an issue for right now. But uh, you've got you know if you've got your one god's cult here and another god's cult there, and you're just kind of covering all your bases, um, <laughs> you know, going and paying your drachmas in the appropriate cities for the appropriate gods. You can have your fertility taken care of. You can have your afterlife taken care of. Um, well, and that, that actually goes back to, to the speculations about, um, I don't remember whether it's Cape Galadonia or the late Bronze Age Ulu-Burun shipwreck where they're, <clears throat> they found various different altars to different, the, the associated maybe with different cults. And they're wondering, oh, you know, are the, are, is this a multi-ethnic crew that's practicing different religions on board and, you know, one person is mummifying a crocodile in one place and another person is burning incense to another god probably osiris in another place and um it's, yeah, it's not it's not so different than catholicism and saints that's and true and covering your bases there you know whenever you come to any kind of you know chapel or reliquy or something you're always going to you know leave some kind of an offering right but there's one overarching framework there. Right. As yeah. opposed well, to. It's overarching, but, you know, it's not all that overarching. You know, some emphasize, uh, you know, some emphasize the Madonna, others emphasize saints. Other, you know what I mean? There's, I, I think it's less, it might be less overarching than we think. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's reflecting it's the pagan, you know, infrastructure underpinnings of, yeah. uh, right of early catholicism there's there's also the sort of long-lived nature of some of these cults they begin really early in <clears throat> history and culture and they clearly continue into the hellenistic period and even gain strength like isis was not an important goddess in the early days um but osiris is always important always yeah always they, in yeah. fact next halloween i'm going to dress up as osiris <laughs> i'd like to see that <laughs> <laughs> get a big uh, plaster mask or you know it's actually quite halloween appropriate i don't know why people don't do that 
Well, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure in certain circles, <laughs> they do that and not just on Halloween. Right. There's, there's one particular neighborhood in Paris where they still, they still do that. But uh, well, well, so what else do we want to say about, uh, about this underwater find that's taken us? Uh, it's, it's taken us everywhere. It was far afield. Far yeah. afield. Um, I don't know. Would you would you do it? That's the big. That's the bottom line for me. And I'd be very curious to at least go down and look at some of these sites, so long as it's again crystal clear water, <laughs> <laughs> 10, 20 feet, ambient temperature. <laughs> See, I think I think that's where you're really saying you wouldn't do it. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. I think well, the one thing in underwater archaeology is they're very there are no guarantees about this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I like the the sort of untouched um, aspect of this. Once once it's underwater, it really isn't going to be touched. Looters, well, there are people who do looting. Oh, there's a lot of say, looting. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, never mind. But, but you got to yeah. work for it, and it's not like you're just walking along the <laughs> so. desert and you loot the site. You got to actually work for it. Um, so a lot of these are untouched and um, I like that idea. And I also like the idea of people videotaping it so I can have the benefit of seeing it without actually being underwater myself. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Dr. Okay. Gussell, okay. Final, yeah. final words? I think I've, I don't have any final words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wear your galoshes if you're going to be doing this and uh, good. Okay. Okay. Well, I think we all need to towel off after this episode. So as always, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, educator in residence at the Savannah Music Festival, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our longtime sponsor, the Dumont Television Network, the only place to see the exciting new anthology series Joseph Schildkraut Presents. To get in touch, leave us a comment, send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all on word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.